It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 22nd of July. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. We'll begin this morning with the very latest development in the HSE's proposal to close the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. But first, let's rewind the clock. And it's back to the 21st of June. You'll remember the emergency department was to close on the 30th of June. But this is what the Minister for Health told the doll. I have instructed the HSE not at this time to proceed. Not to proceed at this time with any proposed reconfiguration at Cavan. Pretty much a month ago to the day, that was Stephen Donnelly speaking in the Dáil on the 21st of June. The Minister, as you know, won't speak to LMFM about closing the local emergency department in Navan, or we're told he's too busy to speak to us, which is why we're using recordings once again. And Just in case there's any confusion there about that recording, we believe the minister was talking about Navin when he said Cavan. Navin's emergency department was to close at the end of June. In fact, Dr Jerry McEntee assured us the day after the minister made that statement in the doll or made that slip of the tongue in the doll, that it was, in fact, a slip of the tongue. There is no plan to close the emergency department in Cavan, so Minister Donnelly must have meant Navin. Sorry, it's just one of the problems of not having the person here to talk to us again. It would be, of course, a lot easier if the minister saw fit to talk to the local radio. Anyway, let's get back to that doll debate a month ago. The minister, as you heard, instructed the HSE not to proceed with closing Navin's emergency department as planned. Something else Stephen Donnelly had to say a month ago was that he was going to consult widely on the issue. We need to allow for meaningful uh, discussion, meaningful engagement with elected members on all sides of the House and other stakeholders, including the community, including the clinicians. We need to assess all of that in the round and then decide where we're going. The Minister on the 21st of June. Fast forward a month. 
And two, what has happened in the last month about the need to allow for meaningful discussions and engagement between the Minister with elected members on all sides of the House and other stakeholders, including the community and clinicians. We asked the Minister. His department gave us a written response and, well... We interpret that response to mean that nothing has happened. Unfortunately, the Minister is too busy to speak to LMFM, so it's hard to check if we are interpreting that accurately, but we believe we are. To put all of that another way, the medical advice to the Minister is that patients are at risk of poor outcomes in Navin. Some could die unnecessarily. But the Minister said he wanted some space so that he could consult with everyone on this. A month on and there's been no discussions. None, at least, that the Department of Health cared to tell us about. No meaningful discussions and no engagement with elected members on all sides of the House or with other stakeholders, including the community and clinicians. Interestingly, though, a spokesperson for the Minister did tell us that the Minister has asked the HSE to undertake a process to review, validate and stress test the reconfiguration planning. They also said that this process is underway now and it will be completed shortly. Tell us more, we said. The department said no. Ask the HSE. We did. The HSE tell us, contrary to what the department said, that that process is not underway yet, but a review will get underway next week. The HSE says it has set up a national working group on the reconfiguration of Our Lady's Hospital in Navin. This group, they say, will review and assess the reconfiguration plan for Our Lady's Hospital in Navin. In other words, this group will review and assess the closure of the emergency department in Navin. They say they will ensure implementation of the necessary actions to address the patient safety risks at Navin and other issues, including those pointed to by the Minister for Health. This would appear to mean they will ensure the emergency department is closed so that the risk to patients is removed and they will outline to the Minister how they think that can be done safely by providing more capacity in Drogheda and elsewhere. The so-called National Working Group on the Reconfiguration of Our Lady's Hospital in Navan is to begin meeting next week with a view to completing its work within a matter of weeks. Let's speak to Padder Tobin, who's local AIM2 TD for Meath West, founder and leader of his party and the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Good morning to you, Padder Tobin, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. What do you make of all of this? Well, <clears throat> uh, first of all, it's as clear as mud from the, uh, the whole picture when it's put together. Um, but it, it shows, in my view, that the Minister's speech back on the 21st of June was simply window dressing. So the, the minister upped the idea that there would be meaningful discussions with stakeholders, there would be a proper review and an, an, an investigation, if you like, into exactly what the situation was. Um, and it's clear since that speech, nothing has been done by the minister himself, nothing has been done by the department, uh, and it looks like the HSE are putting their own uh, group together to proceed uh, with their plan uh, in terms of the reconfiguration or the closure uh, of Navin. At the request of the Minister, though, in <clears throat> at, the, at the request of the Minister, but, you know, th- there's a couple of things that, that's really important here. No meaningful discussions have happened with stakeholders. So we've had, in Drogheda, we've had consultants, 23 of them, write very clearly that this is dangerous for uh, safe patient safety. We've also found out that they have used the, the data the computer systems in the hospitals themselves 
to show that the HSC's figures about five patients being transferred to Drogheda are wrong and that they estimate that up to 47 patients would have to be transferred to Drogheda on a daily basis. So that gives me great concern that the Minister is leaving this review in the hands of the HSC Hmm. and the HSC has got this information. Okay. You could put all of that another way, of course, um, and you may not uh, agree with the HSE's assessment uh, that uh, the emergency department in Navin is dangerous. Uh, It poses a great risk to patients, outcomes are bound to be poorer, and there's a risk that people could die unnecessarily. Uh, And that is their view, and I'm sure you'll agree with that, that it is their view, whether you agree with their view or or not. Uh, They've made that view known to the Minister, and that's why they've said they want to close it. Uh, The Minister said, oh, hold off there for a minute, for the reasons you've just outlined, uh, because he thinks it's not safe to do it or to send people elsewhere. Uh, So we have a situation where the minister is being advised by his best medical minds. The medical expertise in this country is telling the minister that people listening to us this morning could die if they go to Navin. And nothing has happened. Nothing at all has happened for a month. Is that acceptable? Yep, no, when you take, uh, when you put those and that very strong message from the HSC about the, the risk that they believe exists here, and you contrast that to the lack of action that's happened over the last month, it would definitely give you a cause for questioning, well, what's going on here? Because on one hand, you can't say there is a catastrophic risk of people losing their lives. You know, we've heard of people using the term blood on their hands if people die. And then on the other level, say, well, that a month has passed and nobody's done anything about this particular situation. Um, now, it, it is our view in the hospital campaign that the HSE are not seeking to fix the risk uh, that exists in Navin Hospital uh, by closing it down. They're just seeking to shift the risk to Drogheda. The risk still exists to patient safety. Uh, and as a result, result, the only solution to fixing the risk in, in total is actually the extra capacity uh, in Navin A&E so that they can deal with patients safely uh, here uh, in County Meath. Um, but, but you're right, it does not make sense that we are, we are being told in the, middle, in, in the debate last month that we, in the Save Navin Hospital campaign, are putting people's lives at risk. Uh, and yet, you know, during a, a month has passed in the summer where nobody has done anything about uh, the actual review. And one point I want to say about the review as well, people would, uh, who are listening, I imagine, would expect that a review, kind of like an investigation, would come to a decision. And then that decision would determine what actions would be taken. But I've put in a parliamentary question, and some of the information that you've received chimes with the parliamentary question, that the review is going to take place, and then the action, is going to, the action that the HSE is going to undertake will take place. So, you know, that's basically predetermining the outcome of the review or the investigation, and, you know, saying that we're going to go ahead anyways at the end of this. Our uh, ask on this is that the government would undertake the review and then after speaking with the consultants in Drada, after speaking with the medics in Navin and the, 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 the political representatives, work out a solution that would best deal with the level of pressure that County Mead is under in terms of health care. Mm. But that does not seem to be the way that the government ha- is, is handling it. They have a predetermined uh, approach to this. Um, and, you know, they're setting up a national working group to proceed with reconfiguration. And indeed, while the review has been undertaken, the government themselves have said, that, the minister said, that he will allow for the consultation towards reconfiguration to, to proceed. So in other words, the preparation towards 
reconfiguration to proceed. Mm. And that's a nonsense. How can that work? Well, the Minister, uh, I think, has been clear all along. He believes that the emergency department must close because it's not safe. Uh, But he feels that Drogheda and elsewhere has to be able to take more patients so that it's done safely. Uh, And he says... Uh, that this review, uh, the process is to review, validate and stress test the closing of the emergency department in in Navin in HSE language or department language, that's the reconfiguration planning, but it's to stress test the the closure of the emergency department. Yeah, listen, myself and yourself, Michael, are long enough uh, analysing the HSE to know that lack of capacity in the likes of Drogheda will not be resolved in a matter of weeks. But we also know that the minister is trying to manage this story. And we know that's a matter of fact, uh, because we've been told by the lead clinician in Navin, uh, Dr. Jerry McEntee, that there was a gagging order placed on him and other clinicians in Navin. We believe that that gagging order has extended further than the clinicians in Navin back then. Of course, it was lifted on the clinicians, uh, but there has been no engagement with the community, uh, I I think. Uh, There has been one meeting with uh, the uh, TDs and senators, the Oireachtas members, on the 13th of June, and there it began and ended. Uh, There's been nothing since, uh, and there's been no discussion whatsoever with local media or, or community groups or councillors. Uh, I think Mead County Council uh, were told where to go when they asked to meet with the minister. Listen, it's, it's a very, it's a completely bizarre situation. Uh, the relationship between the HSC and the Department of Health is a dysfunctional one. Uh, the relationship with the HSC uh, and the minister is a dysfunctional one. We have both organisations, both groups, in open conflict uh, on the radio waves uh, up until very, very recently. I've never heard... Um, in the 15 years that I've been involved in, in, in the, uh, political activism here in Meath, I've never heard uh, a situation where HSC were telling the minister that he was wrong, that he, he was making mistakes, that he, he, he didn't know what he was talking about, uh, and that's, you know, that they were going to proceed even against the determination of the minister. Um, that is an inversion of the democratic process in a country. The elected representatives, the elected minister, is the person who the, where the book stops, is the person who is responsible for the actions, and that was inverted on itself. And we, we've seen that, you know, the, the idea of a gagging order mm. uh, being openly, you know, mentioned by the, uh, the lead clinician in Navin Hospital, which is an incredible situation. But the key issue here for people of Meath, the people who are listening to this show, is will they have a health service that they can go to if they are seriously ill or, or they have an accident? Will they have a, an A&E that's able to deal with them safely and in a timely fashion? Uh, and none of what you've read out today and the information that LMFM have, have found out uh, has indicated so far that that is likely. What we know is that we've had a minister give a speech that has not been implemented in any practical way uh, in terms of fulfilling the objective of meaningful and sincere um, uh, engagement and consultation with all of the stakeholders. It hasn't happened even when they have said themselves that this is a life and death matter. Uh, we know that the, the, the HSC are still in charge of this process, even though that they've got their figures wrong. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I, 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 I don't know. Um, I, I think there's a real question about that. And when it was decided 
to carry out this review uh, because people listening to the programme regularly will remember that uh, on Tuesday uh, the HSE asked to speak uh, with its uh, lead on emergency department care and I specifically asked Dr Jerry McCarthy about the discussions that were taking place between the HSE and the Minister. Uh, Dr McCarthy wasn't aware of any. Uh, he certainly wasn't aware of any review or certainly didn't make mention of a review if he was aware of it. Uh, uh, and the same can be said of uh, the interviews uh, done here and elsewhere with the other clinicians, whether that's Dr Jerry McEntee or Dr Colm Henry or, or others for that matter. There was no mention of a, a review. Uh, I, I don't know if it's coincidental or what's happened because nothing has happened for a month. Next thing we know, a parliamentary question is put in by Peter Tobin TD uh, and coincidentally, a media question is put in by LMFM asking what's happened in the last month and next of all, we're told uh, on Wednesday, was it? Was it Wednesday or Thursday we were told? Oh, a review is taking place. Uh, but uh, one of the leading clinicians in the HSE didn't know about that on Tuesday. Yeah. Well, that, that has to lead uh, to uh, the idea that this is window dressing. Um, because if it's not happening on the ground, if it's not happening with the lead clinicians, if it's not happening with the doctors and the consultants um, within the hospitals, within the area, um, any efforts by, the, by parliamentary questions or, 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 or press officers to say, that a review is happening is meaningless uh, and is not happening. Um, so, you know, it, it is clear that we're, what we're dealing with is smoke and mirrors here uh, to a certain extent. Now, I'm, I'm referring to the, the suggestion by the HSE that the National Working Group on config, Configuration would be proceeding. Again, a very fancy name, a very fancy title, but, you know, where's the meat and, and, and the, 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 the bread of what's going on in relation to this? And, you know, I've, I've been speaking to a number of patients in me very recently who have told me that um, they have been forced by, their, uh, by ambulances to go over to Drada and they've had incredible waiting times in Drada, 24-hour waiting time of, a, of an elderly gentleman who fell in a nursing home in Navan, 250 yards from Navan A&E, and a, an, an ambulance was called. It took the ambulance two hours to come because the ambulance came from Dublin. When the elderly gentleman and his family asked to be brought to Navan A&E, uh, the ambulance said no, that they would be bringing them to Drogheda. Uh, when they insisted on being brought to Navan A&E, the ambulance service said that their jobs depended on them bringing this man to Drogheda. When he was brought to Drogheda, the, the accident happened at 7pm last Friday. When he was brought to Drogheda, he wasn't dealt with until 4am in the morning, where they took his bloods. At 8am in the morning, they said to him that uh, they would... Uh, carry out a scan and um, he was too agitated he couldn't stiff, uh, lie still for the scan so then they told him they were going to bring him back to Navin A&E at 8am and he stayed on a trolley in Drada until 8pm that day before a, a, an, a, an ambulance brought him back to Navin A&E so that, that 82 year old man was left lying on a trolley for over 24 hours uh, without any real treatment uh, being delivered to him and the, the, uh, the HSC said that they must bring him to Trotter, even though the road between Navan and Trotter is closed. So they had to travel on about 20 kilometres of extra diverted country roads to make that journey. And he's only the second person this week that I've been told that that's happened to. Um, so it's very clear that there's a chaotic s- situation in place currently, that patients are being diverted away from Navan A&E, and <clears throat> that they're just 
literally dealing with the, the, the waiting times uh, in Drogheda. And parallel to all of that, on the promise of the minister that there would be real, meaningful consultation, a proper, real review of capacity to put in place to make sure that people are safe, we find that that's a, a, a bag of, of, of dust, that it is completely smoke and mirrors, that there's nothing concrete uh, in that in terms of um, proper investigations or, or studies. And then at the final element of this, we're told by the HSC that this will be over in a matter of weeks. And my real concern here is that, you know, even before the dog comes back into place, that the process of reconfiguration or closure will have happened. Um, and it'll have happened in a process whereby we, the elected representatives, won't be able to demand, uh, you know, accountability from the HSE or the minister uh, because it'll, it'll have been done before. Okay. And, and I, I spoke to other TDs in other um, counties who have had their A&Es closed, and they have told me that the summertime is a dangerous uh, part in relation to this because there's usually less political and media focus on making sure uh, there's accountability during the summertime. Uh, and that's that's a real concern now okay. for the National well, Hospital campaign. The minister, it has to be reiterated, is not available to us again today. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, that's uh, Padder Tobin, Ain Two's founder and leader, a TD for Meath West, and also the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. Michael Reed on LMFM. I don't know if you heard, but a border poll is imminent. That's according uh, to the Sinn Féin leader. Mary Lou MacDonald is in Australia and uh, she's been telling members of uh, the diaspora down under that we're going to vote on a united Ireland imminently. Let's speak uh, to local Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, Rory Omuraku, who's on this side of the world, I think. And good morning to you, Rory, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. What do you think Mary Lou MacDonald means by that? morning, Michael. Um, well, Mary Lou MacDonald is you know, giving voice to what many people are saying and thinking, and that's certain politicians, political commentators. Here, This is nationally, like on a domestic level or internationally, who recognise that change demographics, change politics in Ireland, um, obviously the huge game changer that it has been Brexit and the ongoing madness of a particular type of British government and we don't know how that's going to continue and a huge amount of people here north and south just see the absolute logic of Irish unity, the failure of partition and the fact is you you go anywhere Mm. on an international basis, people want to talk about the northern elections, they want to talk Mm. about the protocol and inevitably they start talking about what is the future and they ask about how it is changing. We have all heard the political commentary and even some who would not necessarily be all out and out United Irelanders that are accepting there is going to be a referendum. Now, some of them differ in relation to when that is. But, and look, we have used, I suppose, we've spoken well, about... what does imminently mean? Sorry? What does imminently mean? Well, look, what we've often said that what we're looking for is a five years run and no one wants the madness of Brexit. But it does mean that at some point we are going to, within the near future, we need that at least it would be called and we have constantly and consistently spoken about the absolute failure Mm. of the Irish government to start the preparatory work that needs to happen. Even if you were not in support of the Irish unity, but you believe it may be a possibility, the political sensible solution would be to at least prepare 
and then to have that wider conversation that we allow all the stakeholders, mm. that's North and South, that's Unionists, Nationalists, and none of the above, to have a conversation on what it would look like, and that's as regards health, housing, mm. economics, you know, future business development, any particular okay. issues. Societally, but, how we protect the rights of all. But your party leader seems to think uh, that uh, the Australian Prime Minister, indeed, I take it all, Prime Ministers and heads of state around the world should speak to the next British Prime Minister and try to convince them about the sense and holding a border poll. At least she seems to think that that's what anybody who's interested in the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement would do. I think it's the sensible evolution of where politics is in Ireland at this at this point in time. Hmm. Here, I remember years ago, um, Peter Robinson. Um, speaking as leader of the DUP and speaking about at the time how he thought the union was never more secure. Now I disagreed with him at the time, but this is the same Peter Robinson who now accepts the reality that there will be a border poll and unionists need to prepare for it. Fair enough. But I I suppose there's another point here. The next British Prime Minister might be delighted at the idea of a a border poll and might be (laughs) delighted if people vote in favour of reuniting Ireland because it will save the next British Prime Minister 10 billion euro. If Mary Lou MacDonald is the next Taoiseach, uh, she's got a big bill in her hands, if that's the case. Well, I think that's the that's the simplistic narrative. I would think uh, for those arch-Brexiteers in Britain, I suppose the only logic is um, I, I think we all saw that the North created a difficulty. Uh, it was almost the circle that couldn't be squared in relation to Brexit and that is why we have the whole outworkings of the Irish Protocol and um, and the difficulties of accepting the reality of we are a single island and the huge difficulties that were created by Britain deciding to leave um, to leave the European Union which was not exactly the most sensible um, solution that anybody actually ever offered mm. up in uh, British politics and I think people can now see the economic impact that that is having on Britain. Okay. Probably have been somewhat... So how much will it cost? All right, well, here, people constantly talk about the subvention and the 10 billion a Mm, year, mm. but, like, some of that, like, there's figures that are made up in relation to what's spent on the British Armed Forces. There's the amount of money that is spent in relation to uh, the British Crown. So two, three billion. Yeah, well, here, basically experts differ, but they speak about that the subvention is anywhere between two billion and in around six billion. Yeah, okay. That's what right, we're, it's still that's, a, it's, that's it's still a lot of money, uh, but I, I suppose the prize is great, and you'd have a, a united Ireland. What about the cost of the war? The cost of what? The war. Right. Well, first of all. We've all seen, I suppose, some element of, let's say, Kurt Hubner and, and a number of other people's, I suppose, modelling and the fact that there's the possibility of, a, of an economic dividend. And I suppose some of the piece of work that we're doing on an international basis and that the Irish government need to do is that we have those conversations at, in Europe and in America and everything, that all those pieces are in place in relation to ensuring that we do this properly. Mm. There will obviously be here a, a transitionary system in relation to this. this no, there'll be another war on this island. That's the point I'm putting to you, and that's going to have no, its no, own no, cost. I was, I, was, I was coming to that. Okay. Mm. I don't foresee that. Look, we remember... Well, look here, we remember... Well, we don't remember, but we, have, we know the history of what happened 100 years ago. 
We know what happened 50 years ago. We know the particular conditions in the north of what it was. It was an apartheid state. We know what happened during the conflict. And look, we saw what unionism was able to do in the 1980s, and they could... Jim Molyneux and Ian Paisley yeah. and 100,000 people on the street. And well, there will undoubtedly be loyalist paramilitaries and yeah. they'll stage some sort of a campaign. But are you saying it'll be so small that uh, the all-Ireland Irish government will be able to quash it very easily? What I am saying is loyalist paramilitaries were able to operate because they had the protection of... Hmm. elements within the British state but, do, but you don't seem the worried. amount of collusion was on such a level hmm. that they couldn't have operated without okay it. but explain to me you, you accept that there would be some sort of loyalist paramilitary reaction to the uh, two states being reunited as an all island Ireland state but you don't but you don't but you don't seem worried about that why are you not worried about that? What what I am accepting is we need to do everything from a point of view of mitigating. I don't think anyone Mm. has anything to fear from a a democratic process from from first of all the preparations being made and the conversations happening. Yeah. Like, I am saying that unionism has changed over the years. Yeah. Nationalism has also yeah, But I don't like the idea years. of guns and bombs and all of that. Are you, are you saying that if there was a loyalist campaign, it'd be just a Mickey Mouse campaign? I am saying that we are not in the same situation, that the RUC is gone. I am saying yeah. that the mm. UDUR is gone. I am saying that loyalists and that their protection by elements within the British Army, the British Intelligence Services and whatever, they wouldn't would have to wear with all. In that set of they wouldn't have to wear with all without, with, like without the RUC or without uh, the British Army or the MI5 uh, support and collusion. They, 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 they wouldn't be worth thinking about. I, what I'm saying is they are not, it's not the same factor. I'm saying there isn't that same level of animosity that I can see in relation to unionism. We have seen, we have seen the uh, anti-protocol just a few uh, nutters then is it? is it just a, the, I, I mean why, numbers, just explain to me why you're not worried about it uh, but like I'm, yeah well, I am but I'm saying what I'm saying we've seen the anti-protocol protests we've seen the numbers aren't huge you took the loyalist bands out of it there wouldn't be a huge amount I am saying there is a body of work to do that we lessen there are people who will obviously have a view opposite to mine no matter what the situation they will vote for maintenance of the union. They will vote against Irish unity. What I am saying is, and there's a significant amount of people, I'd say more so, that are of my view that Irish unity is a sensible solution, particularly those people that see it as a means, particularly in the north, of staying within the European Union and away from what has been an absolutely mad type of government operated out of Westminster, right? So I think that's one thing, and I think we have a body of work to show what that Irish unity would look like, a very different Ireland to probably what I would have thought up at 16 or 17 years of age, which was probably very, very okay. simplistic, and it would need to have space and room for all sorts of people. Okay. And that includes, as I say, new communities, a very changed Ireland that we all live in, very okay. changed from well, what even it looked like when I grew up in the 80s and 90s. People can mull that over because the message from Shafane is that the vote will be imminent. Uh, we have to leave it there. We're over time, but thank you indeed uh, for your time and for you. talking that through with us as always. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Loud at Eastmeath, Rory O'Marco. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. An email that's come to me from Mags Stewart says, Hello Michael, I've been listening to your show and uh, the coverage on uh, the potential closure of uh, the ED in Navin. My partner and mum spent 20 hours in the A&D in Drogheda in the past three weeks. Mum waited 10 hours to see a doctor and they think it's okay to send 30 or 40 more patients from Navin to add to that chaos in Drogheda. The Lourdes Hospital cannot take any more patients at the moment. Two of the areas in the A&D are full of patients with COVID. People are standing in the waiting area and along corridors, completely understaffed and under pressure. Total madness, says Mags in her email. And thanks for it as well. Mags, Shannon Dundalk was in touch with us saying, at a time when food... Uh, the cost of food is going through the roof. Uh, they're talking about reducing the number of cattle. Uh, we need to be self-sufficient in this country and I don't know what's going on in the world. It's madness, says Sean. Thank you uh, for your call as well. Uh, another call about the hospital from Brian Navin who says, I think the closure of the ED is inevitable. Maybe I'm cynical, but the minister and the government TDs want to be seen to be addressing the concerns that people have. And then when that's done and dusted, uh, they'll close it. Uh, realistically, how are they going to increase capacity at the Lourdes Hospital in Drada in just a couple of weeks' time, he asks. Thank you uh, for that as well. Alma in touch with us saying, it's terrible that the banks are moving towards uh, being cashless. What about older customers who like to be able to access their money so they can treat their grandkids on their communion or confirmation, for example. What are they supposed to do now? How are they supposed to manage, uh, she says. Uh, Thanks uh, for that, Alma. Indeed, I think the Taoiseach uh, wants uh, to speak to AIB and uh, he's asking them to reverse the decision. Uh, We'll have more about that later. Pat says, uh, we all know that the banks are what they're like uh, and they've been getting away with that kind of behaviour for years in this country. It seems to be the case that the banks can do whatever they want, no matter what the cost is to the public, and they are never held accountable for their actions. The government of this country have a sin to answer. Um, Raid in Drogheda saying parents know in advance about the cost of returning to school in September, but that doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't make it any cheaper, especially when inflation is as high as it is, which is placing additional pressure on families. When you have a set income every week, there's only so much you can do with it. And if other bills are rising, then she says, you have less money to spend. Paddy Fien has been texting the programme uh, this morning. He says, I know you're focusing on Navin this morning, but I I would like you to discuss uh, the imminent disaster that we in Drada, Ireland and Europe are heading into. The biggest crime is taking place right under our noses. It's outsourcing jobs, housing, health, banking, cashless banking, waiting lists. God, even the simple 99 flake. <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you on about, buddy? <laughs> They're outsourcing the 99. Oh, there'll be a revolution. Uh, he says they, they do this when there's a shortage because flake is now made in Israel. This is a travesty. Paddy, (laughs) you've just ruined her Friday. He says the reason for this, uh, and it is a serious point that Paddy is making, it's just, uh, uh, I was reading it uh, 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 for the first time as I was reading it to you, and it took me by surprise that he mentioned the 99. Didn't know that, Paddy. He says the reason is wages, contracts, pensions, and contracts. 
Uh, they're all being erased. And why is that? He says, for a profit for just a few. We need to take back control. Maybe even a revolution, he says. France and the yellow vests comes to Paddy Fian's mind this morning. Well, thanks uh, for sharing that with us indeed, Paddy. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the President, Michael D. Higgins, signed what's called uh, the Health Miscellaneous Provisions uh, Bill into law yesterday. This means uh, that children under the age of 16 won't be charged if uh, they have to spend a night or more in public hospitals. It also provides for free contraception uh, for women and should come into effect from September. Let's speak now to Alana Ryan, who's uh, the Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland. Good morning to you, Alana, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, tell us what, what's involved in this. Uh, what type of contraception will be free to which women? Thanks, Michael. Yes, so it's a really welcome development. It's uh, free contraception for women aged 17 to 25. It will cover all forms of contraception, so including the most effective forms, uh, the copper coil and the hormonal coil and the implant. And uh, it will also cover the cost of the GP visit as well. So, you know, it's, it's a really welcome public health initiative. But what we're calling for is an extension of the age range in Budget 2023 so all women can benefit. OK, in which direction? Because uh, I suppose you can understand uh, why it's being introduced at the age of 17, because that's the age of consent. Sure, but Minister Donnelly in the um, debates on the bill actually did publicly commit to uh, ensuring that there wasn't going to be a lower age range and to take forward legal amendments in the autumn so that adolescents can also benefit from this. So our focus is on the the next age cohort up, so the 26 to 35. Okay, Uh, and uh, I'm sure if there's a need uh, for contraception at 25, uh, there is over 25. A lot of people would be sexually active for many years after. Uh, Is it uh, a cost that's uh, prohibitive for some people? Absolutely, because, you know, when we look at um, the cost of those most effective forms, so the hormonal IUS, that's an upfront investment of about €500. And for many women, uh, particularly in the ongoing cost of living crisis, they just don't have that money upfront. And that means that they're reliant on the the much less uh, effective forms like the condom, which, you know, has a failure rate of up to 18%. So, you know, these are really critical concerns for women's health and well-being. And that's why we really feel the state must invest to ensure cost isn't a barrier and that all women can use the most effective forms which work for them. Okay, and there are risks that come with uh, the pill, uh, of course. Uh, uh, People will be advised not to go on the pill if uh, they smoke and you should only be on it for, what is it, 10 years or something like that? Yeah, so absolutely, you know, I think um, there are uh, a strong argument there to try and move people on to things like the the copper coil or the hormonal coil. Um, But really, that's a conversation uh, between a woman and her doctor, uh, given her, you know, her health conditions and her uh, particular needs. There is, um, you know, a lot of evidence that the pill is, is safe and effective and it works for many women. But you're right, it won't work for everyone. So that's why we need to remove the cost barrier so those other forms can be added to the mix and part of the discussion uh, for women and healthcare professionals. Okay. Do you support the idea of making contraception uh, available to under-17s? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the current case in the state of play in the NHS in the UK. And that's because ultimately this is a public health initiative. It's about protecting and safeguarding the health and well-being of women and girls. And unplanned pregnancies do happen and they cause significant uh, distress and trauma. And really, we need to be ensuring that uh, we have adequate and age-appropriate sexual and uh, reproductive health education in our schools, in in the curriculum, and and having those conversations with parents as well um, and in the wider community. But we absolutely also need to see um, universal contraception so that... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, women uh, and and adolescents can avail of that. Okay, can you justify that without reducing uh, the age of uh, consent, uh, Alana? Because, uh, I mean, uh, there is the issue of consent, and I think anyone under the age of 17 is not deemed capable of giving consent. So if there is sexual intercourse, it's considered to be statutory rape. So, I mean, this is why um, the minister committed to looking at the issue in the autumn rather than trying to rush through the legislation before the summer recess. But ultimately, we have a situation at the moment where we publicly fund abortion care for all ages. And really, we need to be um, reducing the risk of unplanned pregnancy in the first place. So that means publicly funding contraception as well, because nobody really should be in a situation of a crisis pregnancy. And we know that the evidence uh, is that where universal contraception is in place, that really does reduce risk and help to ensure that uh, women and girls are protected from adverse health conditions like STIs, um, have ability to continue on in education and uh, in employment because of, uh, you know, the, the, the ability to control their own reproductive cycles. And there's, there's huge impacts there for gender equality. So absolutely, we would support this across the age range. OK, there is an ethical dilemma, though, is there not? Uh, I mean, uh, you're talking about people considered by the state who aren't capable of giving consent on one hand. On the other hand, you're asking the state to give them the tools, if you like, 
to be sexually active? No, I don't think that provision of a public health measure means um, that you're encouraging sexual activity. I think what it is is recognition that there will be some young people who will engage in sexual intercourse, and that's the reality of of adolescent lives in the here and now. But as a state, Mm. we have a responsibility to ensure that we are protecting and safeguarding their welfare, and that means provision of universal contraception. Okay, I, I, I think that some people would argue at least that there is an ethical dilemma and I think that you'd probably find resistance from parents uh, who will not like the idea of uh, young children, um, minors uh, who are not uh, considered capable of uh, consenting to uh, an action uh, that they'll be facilitated in carrying out. So, I mean, this is a conversation between the GP and um, the teenager, and it can also involve the parents as well. You know, this is really about recognising the realities of um, teenagers' lives and and realising that not in all cases, but in some cases, despite having, uh, you know, adequate and up-to-date sex education in Mm. our schools, there will be some uh, adolescents who do engage in sexual intercourse and we really need to ensure that their safety and their health and well-being Mm. is prioritised. Okay, but there's many parents that are... These are really well placed to have that conversation with the teenagers and their parents. Okay, but there's many parents uh, who want to hold on to that control as they see it. Uh, And many of uh, those same people will remember when you couldn't get contraception in this country uh, unless you were married. And that was up to very recent years. Uh, I think it was the 90s, wasn't it, Um, when contraception uh, was made uh, available generally to the public? I mean, we've absolutely come huge strides in terms of recognising women's um, reproductive health and supporting that. And I think that the next logical step is to have universal free contraception because this is a public health measure which we know has uh, significant gains for the state. You know, it's been rolled out to all ages for free in the NHS, in our nearest neighbour for, you know, about 50, 70 years. And ultimately they do that because they recognise that the cost of provision of universal contraception is offset uh, significantly Mm. by the social impacts in terms of socioeconomic benefits, but also around, um, you know, birth costs and abortion costs and prevention um, of of unplanned pregnancies. So, you know, this Mm. this is really backed up by the evidence. Okay, do we know what those costs to the state are? Uh, Because you have uh, explained to us uh, it'll be the cost of uh, the contraception for any woman aged between 17 and 25 who seeks it, but also the cost of the GP and all of that will then uh, be passed on to the state. Uh, Is there an estimate as to how much that will come to? Yes, so last year uh, 10 million was invested in this um, and the full year cost is estimated at about 20 to 25 million. Um, The 10 million was just for a partial year. And so that's why we're calling for a 45 million investment so we can increase that age range and bring the next cohort in on the universal scheme. And that's so important because we know that it's not just young women who are uh, struggling Mm. to to access the most effective forms, It's, it's women across the age range. Okay. Does it need to be that expensive? Uh, Could uh, the GP's role in this be curtailed somewhat? Uh, Because there's a lot of money being spent on repeat prescriptions, aren't there? 
uh, where a chemist uh, could probably carry out that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that again has been piloted in the NHS in England where the repeat prescription is given through the pharmacies um, at the six-month mark. And, you know, we're awaiting the... the um, research evaluation from that but I think uh, you know there's certainly a strong argument for bringing pharmacists into the mix here and uh, pharmacists prescribing of oral contraceptives has been done successfully in about a third of US states and four provinces in Canada too so you know it really is something which is being um, rolled out effectively in other jurisdictions and I think it's something that has to be the part of the conversation here too. All right. well thanks for talking to us this morning Alana Alana Ryan is uh, the Women's Health Coordinator with uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, Sinn Féin wants something done to make school uniforms more affordable, I suppose you could say. Who doesn't? Uh, let's uh, speak uh, to the party's spokesperson on education, Donka O'Leary. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You in- introduced a bill before the summer recess, uh, which you say would mean that that would be the case for parents uh, who are struggling with uh, bills. I think we spoke to you around that time. Uh, but I I don't think that there's going to be any action uh, to bring down costs lower than they are at the moment uh, before September of this year, is there? Well, I suppose when I was speaking to you the last time, we were um, looking for a range of things, but we did want immediate action. We wanted immediate action on on school transport, which is something that we have pushed the government to move on, uh, and also in relation to back education allowance or back to school allowance, I should say. Um, And we did manage to move the government in relation to that. They have taken on board some of what we've proposed now, they haven't gone as far as we would have liked because we wanted to see it extended. They've increased it for people who already get it, but they haven't um, extended it to those who don't get it at the minute. So what we are proposing to do is to uh, extend it to half a million other children, um, those on from families who are on middle incomes. Uh, there are uh, an awful lot of children at the minute are coming from households. Uh, if you have one child and you have a combined income over €620, Euro, then you won't qualify for it. That's not a very big income. But just in relation to the mm. uniforms, like we recognise that's going to, we recognise the right of schools to have a uniform. That's a choice that they are entitled to have. Um, but the problem is, is that then some schools, and it's usually there, some schools go to significant lengths to try and ensure that uniforms are as affordable as possible and offer yep. loan schemes and mm. whatever. But there are some schools that require enormous amount of items between the tracks, between the blazers, mm. between the different items, and a lot of them to be credited mm. and um, all that kind of stuff. I'm so sure, I'm sure there's many parents listening to you now saying, tell me about it. Uh, I mean, it is uh, a huge bill that people face, uh, but that's the way of the world. The schools want it, and indeed, uh, there's many parents who want it. There is, and, and like I, uh, like as I say, I absolutely recognise that parents, uh, sorry, that schools are entitled to have uniforms, and it's part of some schools have them, and some schools don't. And my own schools that I went to myself had uniforms. And I I wouldn't have a problem with that. And the schools we send are are allowed to have the uniform. There's no problem with that. The problem is, is that in 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 other jurisdictions, they're just not as expensive. And what we want to do is, you know, to to. Uh, Sorry, just one second. Okay. Um, I, I think you have a budding student close by. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll yeah, be, yeah. By the sounds of things, it'll be, a, it'll be a couple of years before they're in a classroom, by the sounds of things, Donica. Yes, yeah. right, yeah. So, look, come here. Um, the, in, just in relation, like, I mean, what you have in other jurisdictions is that you have, um, you have much more choice in terms of being able to go to multiple providers for parts of your uniforms. You have iron-on or, um, or so-on badges and things like that. 
So what we're putting in place, the minute the department has these circulars, and these circulars don't really place any real obligation mm. on the schools, what we're proposing to do is to force schools to have an affordable uniform policy. That affordable uniform policy, you would have to consult with parents in relation to it yep. uh, before it was agreed. Well, what, that what, happened what, back, oh God, it's nearly a decade ago when Rory Quinn was uh, the Minister for Education. Uh, he did consult with parents. There was a, a ballot sent out and there was all sorts of promises, but he, like many before him and many ministers after him, failed to introduce these measures because this is nothing new that you're suggesting and not saying that you're claiming I, I that. I think it's a bit different. I think it's a bit didn't Michael in that I mean yes there was that ballot there or whatever but mm. nothing came of that this would be a direct consultation between the schools and the parents and that would be the basis that the school and the schools would have to have uh, mm. a policy and it would be an affordable uniforms policy and a number of the things that that policy would have to have is it would have to ensure uh, that no child would miss out on extracurricular activities mm. uh, because they can't afford uh, tracksuits and so on. It would, it would mean that schools would have to ensure that items would be available from multiple local, uh, locally available retailers. What about the specialised shops? Uh, I mean, is that some sort of discrimination against shops that spell, uh, sell specialised uniforms? Uh, they were very out of sorts uh, going back over the last decade uh, when all of uh, this was first being proposed. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I would still be of the view that like, I mean, I'm not proposing that we end the days of school uniforms. And if you're a retailer that is already doing a big trade in um, various um, items across the different colours and styles and all the rest of it, mm. and you're doing other items, you still have a huge competitive advantage over the other um, over the other uh, retailers. Yeah, that but if you have a small shop and the, the children in St. Mary's or St. Joseph's or whatever have to get their uniform in, in that shop, that's their main source of trade, and you'd be effectively putting them out of business. I wouldn't agree with that, but like I mean, I suppose the point here is that we ensure that there's choice here for the parents, and parents could still, if that if that retailer was was uh, was at a competitive uh, price and could ensure that things were affordable, then then that won't be a problem. The point is here is that there are many many parents who, because they don't have choice, because they are uh, having to fork out significant amounts. Like I mean, that is the focus here, and there are when you combine it with books and all the other costs that relate to back to school, mm. then you know, parents are enormously out of pocket. And it would urge as well, like, I mean, I would also be urging the government not to drop this issue of extending back to education allowance. There is still time between now and September. The back to education allowance, or back to school closing footwork allowance is usually paid out until mid-September. There's no reason that in this year that it couldn't be extended between now and then to assist parents who are really, really struggling with uniform costs, with book costs. Well, in fairness, as I said to you the last time, I don't think those parents that you're talking about were expecting anything, and those uh, who were expecting something will be delighted with uh, the increases. Uh, But when it comes to the points that I'm putting to you on uniforms, uh, I'm not saying that they're right. I I am saying, though, that that's the kind of resistance uh, that you'll get to your bill because it's the kind of resistance that's been there before. Uh, And not only that, but you'll have people who talk about the old school tie. uh, And they they want uh, their children to go to schools that would be unaffordable for the riffraff, if you want to put it that way. They want to have expensive uniforms. They they, uh, take delight in the idea um, that uh, their children are are going to uh, what would be considered to be a, a school for the elite. Yeah, well, look, 
people will always seek, unfortunately, to try and find ways of excluding people um, and they will find whatever routes that they can and some will, will find routes like that. But these are the rich and powerful uh, who will be heard in the corridors of power and that's part of the problem, is it not? Uh, look, I, there's no doubt about that in this country that the rich and the powerful have the ears of those in government and you can see that right across the board, whether it's in relation to the policies that are in there in relation to housing or in relation to um, to the to the, to the kind of treatment that banks get in the state and so on. Absolutely, that is the case. But that doesn't mean that we can't, um, I suppose, put forward our point of view. But I would also say that it, you know, it's very hard. To, I think produce a credible argument, and these people would need to produce a credible argument against schools being. Um, forced to have an affordable uniforms policy. And that wouldn't be identical in absolutely every school. You would have to have a consultation with the parent. And I think that's the value of this, is that you can have that local consultation rather than that having as a national level, mm. which didn't succeed before. And that would, I think, iron out some of the issues in relation to the particular okay. local traders. That but the, the minister has asked the schools to do that, hasn't she? Well, yes, in, in, in the form making, of circulars. And all, yeah. no, which is the point of the circulars is that, like, I mean, circulars can go out and they can be effectively disregarded. This, mm. this could not be disregarded in that way because a school would have to take an action on it. They would have to implement an affordable uniform okay, policy. But it probably so. would be legally challenged. I mean, Rory Quinn... Uh, he made many promises before he uh, and the Labour Party uh, were elected to office uh, but one of them was that he would do exactly what you're saying uh, and that you'd be able to have iron on or so on crests, you'd be able to buy your uniform in Aldi or some specialised shop depending on what you wanted to buy and all of that sort of stuff uh, but, that, but then he, he found it wasn't possible, there was just too much resistance uh, and that was the end of it and it's gone on like that ever since with uh, every minister uh, that's followed in his footsteps. Now we have uh, the current minister Norma Foley asking schools uh, to do this and make it more affordable for parents. Uh, some will, some won't uh, and I'm not sure that legislation uh, will uh, go down without challenge and I, I think that's probably uh, the point that you're facing into but apart from all of that uh, your bill isn't even going to be debated until after uh, the schools are, are back why, why did you leave it so late to bring it forward if it's so important? Well look I mean I would say that it's the, it's the second piece of legislation and it's the third piece of documentation that we've produced between now and last Christmas in relation to school costs and obviously you can't just draft legislation over the night, overnight all the time these are political points that we've been raising for some time now. Mm. We managed to introduce the bill, but we're conscious... Well, of I remember 20 years ago these points were being made and St. Vincent de Paul and others were calling for exactly uh, these generic uniforms uh, to be introduced because people uh, could... Uh, it's been our position for some time as well, Michael. My point is that, yes, we put it into legislation just before the summer recess, but it has been something we've been arguing for some time. But the other thing I'd say is when we brought forward that package just uh, about four weeks ago, uh, that I spoke to you about, or maybe it was even less, in relation to back-to-school costs. Mm. Um, the We identified that there were things that we could do in the short term, and that includes school transport, back-to-education, uh, back-to-school allowance, uh, that would give people relief in the short term. But we were also conscious of the fact that this isn't just a problem this year or last year, but it could be a problem next year and the following year and so on. So we want to assist parents now, but we also want to permanently reduce this cost and that's why we're looking at voluntary contributions and bringing that down gradually over the course of a few years mm. about eliminating 
school transport fees gradually mm. over the course of a number of years uh, and so on in relation to school okay. books. Not all these mm. things can be done overnight. There are things that we can do overnight, such as in extending the back to education allowance mm. to those on middle incomes who aren't getting it at the minute. We can't do everything overnight, but I we know. are keen to you, you, you'll, uh, you'll have to forgive some of us for being cynical because we've been listening to exactly those points for 20 years plus. Well, look, people can be cynical as they choose or, or, or otherwise, mm. but I suppose I, I'm not familiar with any other piece of legislation um, that would have done exactly what we're doing here. But it's also part of a comprehensive package. And I would say we have forced some change here already in the last couple of weeks. We have forced the government into conceding on, to some extent, the back to uh, uh, school clothing and footwear grant and in relation to school transport. So okay. we are making some bit of progress, uh, but we're going to have to keep the pressure on to make more progress. Okay, I'm not sure if the government would accept that. They're not here to argue the point, but uh, we'll leave it there for the moment on that point. And thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. As always, Donka O'Leary is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on education. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, people are sleeping in tents uh, these days in Gormanston Army Camp after fleeing war in Ukraine and indeed elsewhere, it has to be said. Uh, I see Conor Gallagher reporting in uh, the Irish Times uh, this morning that uh, the government is urgently looking for hotel beds or beds in guest houses and they're offering €135 a night for single adults to stay in a hotel or a guest house uh, and obviously that will be used uh, for refugees. Uh, In the meanwhile, uh, people will be sleeping in tents in Gormanston in uh, City West and it seems there'll be 100 beds and tents in Knockalachine Direct Provision Centre in County Clare as well. Let's uh, speak now to John Lannan, who's uh, the CEO of Duras. A very good morning to you, John, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. As always, you've been working uh, with uh, people who've migrated to this country for many years. Uh, We're in in a situation like none before it, it seems. Absolutely. We're we're in a situation where the numbers of people who are arriving from Ukraine and incidentally from from other countries as well that are ravaged by war and people are being persecuted is much higher than it has been for a a long time, probably for for any stage in terms of the, the concentration of numbers that are arriving. And we're scrambling to respond. Now, the first thing to say is that the Taoiseach has quite rightly said that we're not going to turn anyone from Ukraine away if they need protection here. But we really do need to do a better job in terms of the the reception and the accommodation that we provide for them. And the Taoiseach's department himself needs to take responsibility for this now. Mm, Okay, and uh, it seems as though we will be turning people away from other war-torn areas, uh, Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, or wherever the case may be, uh, if uh, they're travelling here from some other European country. Uh, I saw you writing about that during the week, uh, and uh, you were saying that morally and legally uh, we need to take a, a look at this new government policy. In, indeed, yeah. Um, the, the government has um, now said that refugees travelling to Ireland from other European countries will require visas. Um, and this is quite worrying. It appears to be a knee-jerk reaction to the problem of the shortage of accommodation. Now, what it means is that some people who do need to seek international protection here, who may be unsafe in, in the, the European countries they're in, 
cannot get access to do that. It also puts barriers on the travel of people with refugee status around Europe to meet other family members. Mm. Now, because we know that many families have been split, they've been divided as a result of them having to escape from and war and persecution. Some might end up in Ireland, some in other European countries. And now putting a visa restriction means that people would have to wait months before they could travel to meet a family member. Mm. Far from a, a ideal knee-jerk, you say. Uh, I take it you say it's knee-jerk uh, because we're talking about small numbers of people in that situation. We, we are talking about quite small numbers indeed, yes. The, the challenge that the government has in terms of the accommodation is a much bigger one. <clears throat> and we're, we're at the point where, as you said, there are people sleeping in tents in, mm. in garments. To, now, that's not ideal um, given the types of weather we get here, sometimes too hot, it becomes quite cold um, then for for some of the, the winter. We don't know how temporary or how long this will go on for. Mm. As you say, they've, opened, they've started to use tents in Nakhlesheen in County Clare now. There are others coming on stream as far as we understand as well. And we have a poor record with temporary responses here in Ireland. Direct provision was set up as a temporary response to the increasing numbers of people who are arriving back in the year 2000 mm. and we've now got it 22 years later despite the numerous reports saying how mm. unfit for purpose it was and how damaging it is and mm. particularly for children mm. you know this is not an environment in which anybody should should have to live but particularly uh, children it 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 you know presents risks for children and for families but it also severely impacts on their development as well longer term Okay, do we have to uh, accept the unintended consequences or the um, consequences maybe um, that uh, result from this? Uh, because uh, there's uh, concern, I'm sure, about tourism in this country. And we've seen hotels ask for up to €500. Euro, and we've seen uh, people in the tourism industry complain because uh, there's nowhere in their neck of the woods for people uh, to come and stay if they want to visit that part of the world. The government out now offering €135 Euro a night for single adults in a hotel or a B&B and uh, I think a lot of people can write off uh, the idea of a cheap weekend away down the country. Indeed, we've, we've got to start looking at a range of alternatives here for, for the accommodation and we, we can't expect hotels to, to be able to, to deliver all of this. We can't expect you know, dilapidated buildings that are being converted you know, quickly to do this either. But we do have a lot of vacant units around this country that can be converted. You know, we can put in place schemes to incentivize people to make their holiday homes available after the, the summer. There are other options. And, and what we actually need at this stage is better planning and strategy around this and how we're going to not just get through the next couple of days or weeks but months and and, and years mm. um, in supporting Ukrainians because people are not able to go back to Ukraine yet as we know you know that mm. it's still a very dangerous country with bombing and with attacks on towns and villages um, 
across the entire country. So yeah. we need the housing agency here in Ireland to take responsibility for this and to start working on the planning and the implementation of mid-term solutions. Uh, and to give uh, an individual responsibility for coordinating all of that. Uh, I think that's one of uh, the main points uh, that you and others have uh, been campaigning for in recent times. So we don't have the situation where we're forced to put people into tents uh, 16 to a, a tent or however many are in these tents uh, I'm not sure if anybody's got in to check uh, how many beds are in each of uh, the tents uh, ha- Have you been hearing about the conditions in Gormanson? Um, I haven't spoken to anybody in, in today or in the last little while about the, the tents and, and what they look like but um, we know that this is only suitable for very short-term accommodation. We know that the tents themselves are, you know, such that people are are sleeping very close to others that are complete strangers. We also know that people are going into these tents without any assessment of their vulnerabilities or needs. And people who have suffered post-traumatic stress, sort of people who have been traumatised by their past experiences are now left in situations where they have to to cope for an an in an unknown length of time in in these very unsuitable environments. I take it there isn't the time to assess them because we're in a a panic chasing our tails and there probably isn't the time to assess whether they might pose a risk to others for that matter. Indeed, they they could. That is that's very true. And and I think one of the, the 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 words that you've used there is very fitting in terms of panic. You know, it's a panic reaction now every day to try to find enough beds for people. I don't envy the. Um, people working in the Department of Children, their jobs in terms of mm. trying to do that. It's really challenging and difficult to do that. Yeah. But this comes back to why we need a whole of government. We need this to come back to the Taoiseach's office. We need the appointment and the resourcing of a national lead to mm. drive the planning, the coordination, the implementation of all of this. We need the housing agency involved to drive the development of the, the medium-term accommodation. We, we urgently need to, to resource all of the, the welfare um, issues and, and, and to ensure that when people are in congregated settings that there are people that, that are available that are, can support them working with the other agencies like TUSLAN, like the HSE to ensure that their well-being and welfare is, is looked after. And, and ultimately now with this we, we need to come back as well to think about some of the, the recommendations on ending direct provision. That's something we still want to see happening. Mm. It's been diverted off track because of the increasing numbers that have been coming in here since February. But we do need to look again now at establishing a refugee agency, as was recommended in the White Paper, to oversee all of the different parts of of this and to start getting it right. Okay, and the hierarchy uh, that seems to be in place in terms of refugees dependent on where they're coming from, which war zone they're coming from. Indeed, yes, and and um, th- there are lots of aspects of what happening of, of what has been done in terms of the response that that points to two tier system as well. So we have people coming from war zones in many parts of the world that are waiting for months for their paperwork in order to get a PPS and to get their 
their meagre 38 euro a week. But on the other hand, the government have shown with the setup of the one-stop shop at Dublin Airport for people coming in from Ukraine and the immediate processing of PPS numbers and processing that we can do better. Mm. And that's for something we, we need equality or equity of treatment for refugees from all parts of the world. We need to do it right for everybody. Okay. Uh, are you optimistic, John, um, going into um, the next few months? Uh, are you optimistic that we will do better? Well, the, the, the Taoiseach, as I said, has, has made a commitment to um, Ukraine that people will not be turned away. So that commitment means that we have to start getting it right. We know that people are not going to be in a position to go back to Ukraine. We also know that as people arrive from other parts of the world, they're not in a position to, to, do, um, to do that either. We're continuing as the Ukraine Civil Society Forum to engage, to make our recommendations. We do that as individual organizations like Doris as well in terms of continuing to to. to make our messages clear in terms of what needs to be done, what we see on the ground. And look, we, we have to be hopeful that there will be change in, okay. in due course. All right. Well, thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning, John. Uh, much appreciated, as always. John Lannan is uh, the CEO of Duras. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's go to Sue Shaw, who's uh, the CEO of uh, the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament. Good morning to you, Sue, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Do you, any of your members understand what all the fuss is uh, about uh, with uh, AIB deciding to go cashless? First of all, good morning to you, Michael, and to your listeners. Um, do they understand it? I think they're confused by it. Oh, okay. That's the first point. I think they're disappointed. For many of them, they're long and loyal customers. They've mm. been with the bank for a long time. And I suppose they feel that they weathered the storm when they were, the, the banks were bailed out. And now that they have needs that are not necessarily fitting the digital and IT system the banks are offering okay. that's being ignored. I mean, they wouldn't be able to pay with their phone or... Their, no, car- their card. Be, if, some are, but mm. the majority would not be. Particularly mm. our older members would be saying, like, what's this about? Mm. Confusion comes a little bit, I think, from two things. One, that the AIB have consistently over a period through their CEO said they are committed to a local uh, a consistency and commitment to local and robust branches. Mm. Robust branch means one that lets you walk in, do your business with your cash, it isn't one that says, no, you can't, and we've no cash point outside. Yeah. There's a little bit of confusion about when did mm. that policy change and what made the change. Well, the a statement from the central bank, uh, I thought, uh, put it very well, saying uh, that basic banking services should be available to vulnerable customers. Exactly. And I'm not even sure that I'd agree as such with the vulnerable. The bottom line is, I think growing hashless makes older people and other people generally mm. more vulnerable, simply because... If you have to travel, and this is one of the impacts it's going to make, that for those who don't have a post office locally, and I'll come back to that, but the day they have to travel. So if you're living in Buncrana, you've an hour and a half round trip into the next ba- the branch, and you're, you're going to take out more cash, possibly than you would if it was just your local branch. Yeah, so you've money in the house, you're a target for the robbers. That's uh, my concern. That's our with, concern. Same with the pubs and the restaurants and all of that. Yeah, the post yeah. office thing doesn't work out, yeah. And the post office is a great idea. Mm. But it begs the question, and I sincerely hope the Oireachtas Committee on Finance asked the question, if you're investing in a deal with the post office for people to go in and take out cash, why did you not just continue the service? Mm. 
why the change? I know, you're being sensible. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, logical. My members are being yeah. sensible. Yeah. Like they've mm. pointed all of this out. They've done quite a bit of reading on it in the last, since the announcement. And they're curious mm. as to go, well, look, it seems as though they're continuing because it yeah. does. Mm. And it's not that we we're delighted that there is something. But that is based mm. on a premise that there is a post office in yeah. the local area. Yeah, yeah. And post offices have closed. I mean, we've had a lot of talk about this uh, as well. Um, uh, everybody's talking about it because uh, the idea that there's no money in the bank uh, really is of concern if you want money because you're going to want money uh, you might want money to buy an ice cream and you might prefer to have money to buy the ice cream rather than use your card or your phone or whatever the case may be and you might go in to buy an ice cream and the shop mightn't have a machine to be able to take your car details uh, and take payment from you that way. The publicans giving out for the same reason, for many reasons, that they don't like the idea of having all the money uh, on the premises overnight because they'll be targets uh, for the robbers uh, as well. But uh, people will be coming in and some publicans will be able to take uh, car details and some people will think, oh, I don't want to use my car to buy a pint. Exactly. And I also think that one of the things that concerns us about it is Who's this convenient? Who's it convenient for? It's certainly not their customers. But the way the way the AIB's wage bill—it's very convenient exactly. for that. Yeah. And the security, mm. increased security costs for handling and dealing with cash, mm. keeping cash, and that should be. There's enough profit in the banking system to allow for that. Is there though? I mean, uh, this probably is uh, the pertinent question. Uh, if uh, people are, are worried about the increase in their mortgage interest rates, and some of uh, the banks are absorbing uh, those rates, for example, or other banking services, uh, will 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 they continue to? absorb those increases or will that kind of borrowing become more expensive for people if the bank can't do something like this to claw back uh, some of its overheads? And I understand that. Certainly, we, you know, but the bottom line is I don't think that profit margin is narrow enough to be considering some of the decisions they're making. And as I say, I really hope that the Oireachtas Committee on Finance tease out some of the reality of this and what is the thinking behind it. Like for me, I also think with the increased cost of living, people having to travel if they're going by car. And if you're in a rural mm. community, sometimes the car is the only option for you. Mm, the price of petrol and diesel is through the roof. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. It's through the yeah. roof. So mm. it's an added mm. increase in costs that they can't afford. I do also think that if you leave your local community to travel, like I'm thinking if, I'm, if they're saying to me that I'm in Bunkrana and I need to travel to... Donegal Town or mm. to Letterkenny or wherever it is, is the nearest branch, mm. then I'm going to do my business in, um, in that town. Mm. I'm not going to keep it in my local village. Well, for as long as you can do your business, because if it makes sense to close it in Bugcrana... Then when's the next one? Well, when is the one in Donegal going to close, exactly? exactly. Yeah. And I also yeah. think, mm-hmm. Michael, the reality mm-hmm. is that... There's a monopoly now with the bank, with with the other two banks closing. Mm. It gives AIB a fair amount of monopoly. And like at the end of the day, the government is a 60% stakeholder in that. Mm-hmm. Government, that's us, that's you and me and our members and your, your listeners mm. uh, are the stakeholders in that bank. When did we get a say in whether this was the best thing? And I do think there's elements if they're I think I, th- I think we did get a say after the event, and that's uh, <laughs> when, when people voted Fianna Fáil out of office, yeah. yeah. Well, and I suppose that's the thing. The reality mm. is that one of my members said to me, look, sometimes I wonder, do we deserve it? We continually vote for this. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But at the end of the day, you've got to trust your government to act in some way. So when they're bringing the banks up before them, that they do have some 
structure that there's an accountability. So for me, it'll be how did the government act after the Oireachtas Committee and the question. Well, what about the Taoiseach? Because he's called AIP and it hasn't he? And he, he's and asked him to reverse it. Before, but before they have gone before other committees and there hasn't been, they've listened to what's been said, but I haven't seen any serious action being taken. So we would hope and our members will watch. And as we all know, older people vote. We will all watch with interest how this gets handled by the government and how many, how are they listening to the overall reaction mm. of we're not happy with this and it isn't just older members mm. like older members have families and I suppose that's a concern for us as yeah. well okay. one of the things that we think it leaves is a level of vulnerability that if I can't travel on the local bus that might be leaving at 9 o'clock and the next one is until 1 o'clock that I'm going to have to give my card over to a family mm. member now most of us are fortunate enough and most of our members to live with families who care and, but I'm giving away independence but in the cases where abuse can happen, I'm giving away a lot. More. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that I mean, so the risks of kind of storing cash at home, giving away your independence, mm. it's just creating a vulnerability for people who are genuinely yeah, older yeah. people are not. But an unnecessary risk that didn't exist ever. Yeah, um, you'd imagine that uh, the bank would take uh, the Taoiseach seriously calling them in. Uh, would you be hopeful uh, that Michal Martin will be able to convince them of the error of their ways? No, I wouldn't. No. And I hope you're going to have me back to eat my words. Okay. <laughs> that would be unusual. <laughs> all right. Okay, thanks. Uh, so we leave it there. And, uh, Not at all. Uh, we'll, see, there we'll see if uh, maybe we can get you to eat a hat or something. But uh, thanks. <laughs> Th- th- thanks for joining or us. My bank card or, or my bank card or your bank card or something right. like that. Your, your phone. Thanks, right, uh, Sue Shaw is the CEO of the Irish Senior Citizens Parliament. That's our programme for this week. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 